Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Sean McCoy from the Come to the Table podcast. And I had Christoph Anderson reach out to me, my new comrade, and tell me he'd do a 30-second promo if I told a joke about the former Soviet Union. So here I am channeling my inner Ronald Reagan. And the joke goes, there's an American dog, a Polish dog, and a Russian dog. And they're sitting around talking about what life is like. And the American dog says, it's so great. All I got to do is bark. And my master brings me a meat-based treat. The Polish dog looks at him and says, what's meat? And then the Russian dog looks over and says, what's bark? There you go. Thanks, and God bless. Greetings, comrades, and goons. Sorry for this episode being late. It got stuck in development hell for a while. Uh, also, New Year. We will make it up for you in the following weeks, so that I hope everything will be fine eventually. Last time, we ended when Lenin got dressed up as a peasant and fled to Finland, while in the meantime, Stalin led a party congress and postulated that Russia will become the center of the world, world revolution. That was early August. But the work continues, and so does our timeline. But there are some things that happened in the meantime, so we will take a small step backwards to analyze some events that were mentioned just in passing in the last episode. On the 6th of August, Stalin participates in a meeting of the Small Council of the Party CK where these guys postulate a resolution about one Moscow governmental meeting. That Moscow meeting was made recently in response to the failed coup in July, where representatives of the conservative elements from bourgeoisie, like landlords, bankers, generals, officers, some Mensheviks, Essers, members of the Tsarist Duma, and, well, basically everyone who wasn't a Bolshevik and at the same time wasn't in the temporary government just came together. The intention of those guys was to declare themselves a representative organization like this all-Russian one, thus they wanted to replace the temporary government, uh, the liberal democratic one, with their own. To do that, they decided to use the forces of the counter-revolutionary general Kornilov, who's not even considering Bolsheviks as a mentionable threat. After all, they're all in prison, their leader is in exile, and now the only thing stopping conservatives is the, well, by now, very unpopular temporary government, at least unpopular in St. Petersburg. Kornilov, by the way, was chosen here because the ever more incompetent Kerensky had suspected him of a coup and dismissed him. Some sources out there state that Kornilov believed that he had been dismissed due to Bolshevik pressure. But this seems to be very unlikely, seeing as, for that, he also would need to think that Bolsheviks were in any way interested in working with the temporary government, which they really were not. 
Now, Stalin obviously thought otherwise, seeing as, uh, seeing as Bolsheviks were getting back their strength. Stalin saw a winning hand in the situation, and he started playing it out. So, the Central Committee passed a resolution giving the following tasks to the frontline workers. <clears throat> 1. Tear off the masks of the people's representatives, showing plainly their counter-revolutionary essence. Number 2. Expose Mensheviks and Essers who are using the slogan of saving the revolution to scam the peoples of Russia. And number three, organize mass protests against the, these counter-revolutionary machinations of the saviors, who were truly servants of landlords and capitalists. So, what do you know? On the 12th of August, there is a massive one-day strike and protests against the conservative meeting. That doesn't make the conservative forces feel any worse, though, as on the 25th, General Kornilov, with their support, starts his mutiny against the temporary government, and takes the 3rd Cavalry Corps away from the front and moves them to Petersburg. Kerensky, the leader of the temporary government, is getting really uppity and scared by now. On the next day, he receives Kornilov's ultimatum, and in this ultimatum, Petersburg is declared to be under martial law, and all military and civilian power is demanded to be put under Kornilov's command. Also, the temporary government must resign, and Kerensky himself is ordered to immediately arrive and report to Kornilov. Kerensky's secret informers report that Kornilov has already signed a death sentence for Kerensky. As one of the socialist-leaning ministers of the temporary government, Zarudny stated about that day, quote, The cabinet, without any immediate danger, melted like a snowflake in spring. And quoting another ex-minister, leader of the cadet faction, Milyukov, quote, Essentially, the whole temporary government stopped existing as such from the fear. They threw the citizens at the mercy of the gen general Kornilov. And Kornilov wasn't really a nice man. No one was. The general's own words about the whole situation here were, quote, <clears throat> The stronger the terror, the more meaningful our victories. We must save Russia, even if we'll need to burn half of the country and spill blood of three quarters of its people. See, and, um, and this attitude brought the conservative forces down eventually. If you're a bloodthirsty revolutionary, you should only start talking about mass murders after you've won, and not before. See, it tends to draw the support away, you know. But uh, this, oh boy, time to kill everyone, attitude was widespread uh, amongst the conservative forces, who were at this time extremely, extremely confident in their victory. For one, just to give an example, another one, in the Moscow meeting mentioned before, a progressive member, he was of the Progressives Party, banker and industrialist Juan Ryabushinsky, also declared that, quote, <clears throat> we need the bony hand of famine and poverty to destroy the various committees and Soviets. Yeah, you can go and tell that to the storming masses all around you. That's a smart decision here. So, now we have a Kerensky that's basically doomed to die, and that's being hated by literally everyone. So he does the only thing that, can, that he can figure out he could do. He lets Bolsheviks out of the prisons and asks for their help. Namely, Stalin's help to fight against Kornilov, figuring out that they could be, you know, dealt with later. So, on the 27th of August, Stalin creates emergency committees and raises a small army of workers, peasants, soldiers and criminals to fight Kornilov. They, also under the guise of keeping public order, instantly take control over factories, newspapers, warehouses, stores, and other public objects. A massive confiscation of every automobile and horse in the city happens and hard price limits on various goods are established. Also, a central HQ is established, but uh, Kornilov is secondary here. He's just talk about in passing, the real deal, obviously, is the new proletariat revolution. 
I still sometimes wonder how Kerensky did not expect this to happen. So, our good old pal Kerensky did what he could in this situation. He switched sides and entered in talks with Kornilov. And while this happens, on the night of the 29th of August, the revolutionary Red Army, as they call themselves now, arrests a group of conspiring officers in the Aurora Hotel. These guys are the folks who were preemptively split in various groups to do the planned conservative program. Take over the armored trucks, arrest the temporary government, arrest and eliminate the more influential and visible Soviet leaders and workers' deputies. This, miraculously, works in Kerensky's favor. With this, he, through his informers, managed to convince the lower-ranking officers of Kornilov's forces to stand down without bloodshed which they do, and on the 30th of August, Kornilov and some of his supporting officers are arrested. Some of his forces join up with Kerensky, but the majority go with Bolsheviks. So on the 31st of August, the newly reformed temporary government, well, what's reigned of them, declares the threat to be over. But now they've got revolutionaries in their hands, which are de facto in control over a lot of things in the capital. You see, Bolsheviks now found themselves free, rearmed, swelling with new recruits, and under Stalin's total firm control. While Kerensky had very few troops loyal to him in the capital. Lenin, meanwhile in exile, decides that the time for a coup has arrived. Kamenev and Zinoviev prepose the coalition with the Mensheviks, but Stalin and Trotsky, well, they decide to back Lenin's wish for an exclusively Bolshevik government. And Lenin, you know, <laughs> Lenin, you know, starts staging his things and planning his return back home. For Kerensky, this is a time of desperate damage control. On the 1st of September, the Esser Menshevik leaders, using the time of re-elections in the Soviets and their formal majority in the Central Committee of the Soviets, quickly vote him back to the rights of, you know, forming a new government, and Kerensky instantly declares himself to be the commander-in-chief again, creating a ruling so-called directory, because revolutions must have directories, as we all know, and this directory obviously consists exclusively of conservatives and Mensheviks, because Kerensky switches sides once again, and now once, you know, conservatives back in power, because those guys who were so recently just happy to throw over this temporary government and instead their own conservative forces are now in trouble, because Bolsheviks, you see, are out of the prison. But, yeah, Bolsheviks. To appease them, he decides that, hey, we didn't give you any any seats now in this directory, but uh, on the 3rd of September, he declares Russia to now be a republic. On the same day, the first print of the new newspaper, Workers' Way, is printed. Because Stalin doesn't, doesn't mind whatever Kerensky is doing. And, of course, in this Workers' Way, there is an article by Stalin in it. It's called Crisis and the Directory. Quote, in the last six months, our country has endured a crisis of the government for three times already. Every time the crisis was solved with some agreements with the bourgeoisie, and every time the workers and peasants found themselves fooled. You simply can't get a strong agreement between a worker and a landlord. Taking this into account, the fight for power is not only not over, but completely the opposite. It's getting stronger and more sharp. Let the workers know that in this battle they will suffer only losses while Essers and Mensheviks still have influence in the masses. Let the workers understand that for the taking of power it is necessary to tear back the masses of peasants in the countryside from these agreeers, Essers and Mensheviks, and to gather them around the revolutionary proletariat in the capital, exposing the traitors for who they really are. And they do. Sort of. Again, my pro-communist sources here state that there are about 2 million protesting and striking workers around Russia demanding all the power to the Soviets. 
but these numbers seem to be exaggerated. Because the peasants and landlords in the countryside like the Republic quite much. And even though the support for the Bolsheviks is widespread in Petersburg and is noticeable in Moscow, the folks in the countryside have overthrown Tsar and, you know, are feeling a bit comfier. Sort of. Because, again, this is the Russian Revolution and uh, things are about to get really messy. At any rate, Stalin is getting happier. In the same Workers' Way newspaper, number 13th, that is published on the 17th of, of September, he writes, quote, Revolution is on its way, fired upon in the days of July and buried in the Moscow meetings. It's rising its head once again, breaking old barriers, grabbing new power. In the flames of the fight, it's resurrected again. The Soviets are again taking control, leading the revolutionary masses. All power to the Soviets. That is the motto of the new movement. And on the 21st of September, the Bolsheviks decide that this bourgeoisie republic thing, yeah, it has to go, really, and they should put effort into it. Stalin announces the directive, signed by Lenin, that proclaims a total boycott of the elections of the pre-parliament. Which is the thing that Kerensky, with his directory, is doing now, uh, the poor soul. Also, another glorious article by Stalin, which is published, again, in the worker's way, talking about the things to come and showing his attitude towards the liberal bourgeoisie government. Quote, The government of the bourgeoisie dictatorship is the way how the minority rules over the majority, which can only be achieved via violence against the majority. It demands a civil war against the majority. Contrast that to how the dictatorship of the proletariat and revolutionary peasantry can completely do without a civil war. The dictatorship of the bourgeoisie is, is hidden, secret, behind the scenes one. It needs some way of tricking the masses, of cheating the masses while the dictatorship of the proletariat and revolutionary peasantry is an open dictatorship of the masses which doesn't need any skullduggery, neither in foreign nor internal affairs. Yeah, this is probably the funniest quote that you'll get in this episode. But, well, October has come. Bolsheviks have gathered their strength, and uh, with it, the really fun events can begin. Kerensky, at this point, is properly paranoid. After all, he, even though has a small army of his own and support in Moscow and other cities, is definitely not comfortable in Petersburg. On the 6th of October, for one, his plans of evacuation to Moscow with the whole temporary government and, moreover, evacuation of the major industry of St. Petersburg to the depths of Russia is leaked. Stalin just says no. Literally. Well, the official declaration is that there can be no evacuation of the government without agreement from the Soviets. But like I said, yeah, this literally means just no. And two days later, on the 8th of October, Lenin returns to Petersburg. Now, this is where we have to give some credit out to the hero of our previous long series. You see, where a less decisive leader would have been, like, happy to remain in Sterosetsk and, like, work on his book or something, Lenin saw that, you know, time to act is now. If any single event, like, justifies his reputation as a revolutionary, it must be this decision to seize time. Lenin held a meeting of his central committee at Sukhanov's apartment, at which he urged action. The decision to shake the world was carried by 10 votes to 2. Stalin voted silently with the majority, while Kamenev and Zinoviev continued their opposition to armed struggle, publishing an open letter criticizing the decision, by the way. Lenin was furious and demanded their expulsion from the party. Stalin, the moderate, which is already funny, opposed the motion. When he was defeated, he offered to resign from the board of Pravda, but the offer was declined. Once again, he was hedging his bets. 
agreeing with Lenin's policies, but keeping in with the other side, because, you know, Stalin is a master gambler. The two rebels were reinstated eventually, but their mistake was, you know, never quite forgiven. Lenin's fate, in coincidence, was slight, and he would refer to any form of dissent as no accident, the expression which Lenin subsequently described Zinoviev and Kamenev's failure to agree with him. Stalin's role in the Bolshevik seizure of power grew steadily with time, until he eclipsed everyone, including Lenin himself. Stalin's favorite general, Voroshilov, wrote in the 1930s, quote, As for Stalin, the founder of Red Army, its inspirer and the organizer of its victories, the author of strategic and tactical laws of proletarian revolution, many volumes will be written about him. He alone was the immediate organizer and leader of the proletariat revolution and its armed forces, end quote. Now, and this is where we run into troubles. This is where the difficulties begin. See, in order to preserve the record as Stalin wanted it to be, because he always, you know, manipulates reality, later on, the first three editions of Lenin's works were withdrawn as harmful because they contained documents revealing Stalin's situation at the time. Volume 21 of the third edition of Lenin's collected works, which I have, by the way, contains records of the Central Committee's meetings for 10th to 16th October of 1917, and these describe the preparations for the coup, establish its command centers, and record the decision to establish a Politburo consisting, in order of importance here, quote, Lenin, Zinoviev, Kaminev, Trotsky, Sokolnikov, and Bubnov. The minutes for a meeting on 16th of October read, quote, the Central Committee is organizing a military revolutionary center consisting of Sverdlov, Stalin, Bubnov, Uritsky, and Dzerzhinsky. And see, there's, there's our problem here. Because whatever part Stalin may have played in these events, he cannot be considered the revolution's only starter. He did a lot for this, but... But... It's also proved necessary to alter kind of records in other respects by Stalin later on, which is why this episode went into this development hell, because a lot of this expulsion and hidden activities, because you can read all about Lenin, but Stalin is, uh, he's the man of steel, but he's the hidden leader here. See, during the period when Lenin was in hiding and most of the Bolsheviks' leaders were wondering whether he was right to call for an insurrection, the kind of the central dude around was indeed Trotsky. Trotsky had a unique ability to bring crowd to the highest pitch of tension, because he was this uh, loud revolutionary speaker, while, as we know, Stalin just wrote newspaper articles and stayed in the background. And, and he used this power of auditory to kind of, you know, to, to gather, gather more, more converts to the cause. He was, he was this massive propaganda speaker. And, you know, he gained people to his cause, and while originally hostile listeners would leave his speeches kind of, you know, bemused at their speedy and, and weird anticipated conversion, like, Trotsky really won people over to the Bolshevik cause even better than whatever Stalin wrote. Trotsky displayed tremendous energy and, you know, dazzling oratorical skills during the days that led up to the coup. It was his speeches that canvassed support for the cause, taunting the Mensheviks with threats of an armed uprising, only to assure them that being orthodox Marxists, the Bolsheviks were, of course, incapable of anything of the sort. He also turned words into deeds. Uh, Trotsky was the guy who used pure oratory to persuade the supposedly hostile garrison of the Petropavlovsk fortress to hand 100,000 rifles over to the Military Revolutionary Committee and come over to the Bolsheviks. On 22nd of October, the government ordered the closure of the Bolshevik press. It could as easily have ordered the arrest of party's leaders and had them shot on the spot. 
Instead, Trotsky's Red Guards were allowed to occupy bridges, post offices and railway stations, and by the next day, they had complete control over the city once again. Prime Minister Kerensky escaped in a car flying the stars and stripes belonging to a prominent liberal politician, the, far the father of Vladimir Nabukov. Total casualties in the capital on the first day of revolution numbered six dead and about 20 wounded. We cannot say exactly, and that is the sad part, and by we here I mean every source that I read, and, you know, uh, it's a complex issue. We cannot really say what source was played by Stalin, it's, it's just impossible. He seems to have kept to the background, failing on the morning of the 24th to attend the Central Committee meeting which assigned specific tasks to the, re to the leaders of revolution. Trotsky later maintains that Stalin, quote, kept his head down and his opinions open, which, which sounds exactly what Stalin would do, by the way. But yeah, yeah, like I mentioned before about Moscow, it was not taken easily. See, Lenin's supporters established themselves only after a week of street fighting in which artillery was used to bombard the central districts of the city. The Red Guards were reinforced by demoralized deserters from the front, to whom the Bolsheviks obviously had promised a lot for their support. They were also held by apathy and lack of support for, you know, the temporary government, because nobody really cares for Kerensky. And, you know, the conservatives had a lot of power and hold there in Moscow. As a British observer put it, quote, Cruel as it may sound, there were many observers of the revolution who contended that the middle classes of Russia did not deserve a better fate than which was ultimately theirs. The fighting also saw the emergence of a new quality that would characterize Bolshevik behavior over the coming years. Ruthlessness became a vital part in the party's style. It was my lot to be in Moscow throughout these times, and what impressed me the most was the callousness of the almost fanatical leaders in the fighting. I saw brutal executions carried out without a sign of pity or humane feeling on the part of those who committed those acts. On the other hand, the people of the town were themselves surprisingly calm. Even during the bombardment, railways, postal services and many other public services functioned as usual and it was not uncommon to see bread queues standing on the one side of a square whilst the other side was subjected to rifle fire. The theaters functioned as usual and I first saw Chekhov's Cherry Orchard at the Moscow Arts Theater during the days of the bombardment. Incidentally, I had to take cover from machine gun fire on my way home from the performance. Yeah, I don't know, I couldn't find any more British quote with this, and please don't, please don't take it as, a, as an offense, you British guys, but huh, I, I've, I've heard a lot about the British stoicism, and uh, this seems to be quite in place here. At the end of this, in October 1917, there was only one Bolshevik for every 600 people of Russia. Yet, like I said before, the party enjoyed widespread support. Lenin had promised peace and land to a largely peasant army, and his party was also popular among the workers in the big cities. Moreover, this revolution was kind of, you know, kind of the climax of that steady kind of encroachment upon the powers of central government that literally had been developing over the past century, and, um, and this was basically the result and kind of the high point of a massive anarchy that has been rising steadily since the murder of Rasputin in December 1916. Which, by the way, was the event that truly marked the beginning of kind of breakdown of everything at every level. The prospect of social anarchy was the more acceptable to many because much of the population, like that of a third world country really, was self-sufficient. 
It had no stake in the social system which provided it with very little. No education, little protection of property, no public service, health service or social security. The average prison worker or soldier had like literally nothing to lose except their chains. Much, you know, they had, but they had a lot to gain from Lenin's takeover and promise of peace, freedom and bread. Only those with a personal stake in public order or an understanding of the technical problems of government really were outspoken in their condemnation of all this situation. Hello everyone, this is Alice. We would like to say thank you to our new patrons, Sean, Mark, Ast100, Harold, and SK. You guys keep us alive. Thank you. If you would like to become a patron and support us per episode, you're welcome to join us at patreon.com slash the eastern border. We often do giveaways of Soviet memorabilia that you might enjoy, as well as book readings every month. Visit us on Facebook and Twitter at Eastern underscore Border. Send us emails, leave comments, and visit our webpage, theeasternborder.lv, where you can buy our t-shirts and commie tears mugs. Send in your questions. A Q&A is planned very soon. Gurgoons. To address a recent commentator, I am not American, but I do feel that I am American at heart. Please don't tell Christophs. And now, back to the show. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. And now we have come to the part of our study where, um, where you know, I I will urge you to go and listen to my Lenin series because I will not be detailing all the events of the Soviet Civil War in detail here, as I've done that previously, and I really don't wanna don't wanna repeat myself. But this is where Stalin's rise to power begins, and I will focus again mostly on the Stalin, and we'll try to go into detail with those facts which I've missed during the Lenin series. I hope you won't mind that much. Anyhow, the body that would govern Russia under this new communist order was, I might have told you this before, the Council of People's Commissars, abbreviated to Sovnarkom. It had 15 commissars in it, and they were all, like, led by Lenin. Uh, Stalin's name, by the way, was last on the list, as everybody just wanted him to do, you know, more menial tasks. He wasn't a great revolutionary, he wasn't a great speaker. Uh, They just put him down to do administrative things, which would later prove their own undoing. Trotsky and Stalin, by the way, uh, arrived at the first meeting together, and of this we have a nice kind of account and a recollection by Trotsky himself. 
<clears throat> Quote, the committee room was divided by a thin partition from the outer office in which there was a telephone. This was being used by Dubenko, a large bearded sailor who was having a torrid affair with leading Bolshevik woman and an advocate of free love, Alexandra Kolontaya. According to Trotsky, Stalin gave an ugly display of locker room behavior, making lewd observations about the admittedly incongruous couple. Trotsky responded like a self-righteous and genteel prig, revealing all that stiff-necked high-mindedness that sometimes characterizes the Russian intelligentsia. Quote, His gestures and laughter seemed to me out of place and unendurably vulgar, especially on that occasion and in that place. I don't remember whether I simply said nothing, turning my eyes away, or answered dryly. That's that affair. But Stalin sensed he, has made, he had made a mistake. His face changed and his, and his yellow eyes appeared the same glint of animosity that I had noticed in Vienna. From that time on, he never attempted to engage me in conversation on personal themes. End quote. See, Trotsky here confirms that Stalin worked with Lenin at this time, but suggests that, you know, he functioned kind of like a clerk. Uh, here's a personal assistant of some sort, since some of the decrees signed by Lenin and sent to the printers are written in Stalin's own hand. Uh, and kind of an interesting reflection on, on the state of the government, which lacked kind of both kind of secretaries and typewriters uh, in a lot of details. Walter Duranti, an American journalist who came to Russia in 1921, uh, became one of the first of the old Soviet hands whose sympathy for the country sometimes encouraged them to flatter the new order. He learned that in these early weeks, quote, Stalin sat outside the door of Lenin's office like a sentry, watching everyone who went in and came out. No less faithful than a, than a sentry, and as far as we know, not much more important, end quote. And then there's a the story of one Pestkovsky. He was a graduate of the London School of Economics, like, you know, a really educated man, and he wanted a job in this new government. First, he tried the People's Commissariat of Finance. This consisted of a commissar Mezhinsky and a sofa upon which the Mezhinsky used to sit. Pestkovsky was first offered the directorship of the state bank, but the guys in state bank decided to work, do not work with, with this person. He then tried foreign affairs, but Trotsky observed that once the commissariat had published Russia's secret treaties, it would be closing down. Finally, he turned to Stalin and helped him establish his ministry. He found him in an office and a table upon which he placed a sign indicating the table's significance, looking to Stalin for approval. The Nartomnats emitted a non-comital grunt and sent him to borrow 3,000 rubles from Trotsky. And although Pestkovsky worked hard to get the new department going, he was not happy in his work, finding his boss silent, gloomy, and not disposed to gossip. And don't ask me, I dig up these weird stories all the time here. But yeah, Stalin's department had like little to do first as secession and civil war had reduced Bolshevik territory to the heartland of old Muscovy. It dealt with minority populations, as you know, Stalin was responsible for nationalities here. For some reason, everyone since his book, written in Vienna, possibly not even written by Stalin, everyone thought that Stalin would be the biggest expert in these questions. So, his department dealt with minority populations within those bounds, calling on non-Russians to support the new government, making propaganda among POWs and, weirdly enough, closing down organizations of Jewish veterans and the Central Bureau of Jewish Communities, which had been established during the war. Stalin already made it clear that his minorities' policy was based on Russian dominance. His colonial inferiority complex, strong as ever, encouraged him to call for, quote, a strong Russia-wide state authority capable of decisive suppression of the enemies of socialism and the organization of a new communist economy. 
Basically, he wanted to put down everyone else before they teamed up and put down him. First, the minorities, according to him, must be brought under control. Time enough to discuss the niceties of their situation a bit later. And although Stalin's ministry of these nationalities was, you know, only barely stuffed, it became his first power base. Within a year or so, the staff of Narkomnats included a number of people who would remain close to Stalin for many years and formed kind of the nucleus of his personal machine. The first of these, a Ukrainian named Tovshchuka, joined Narkomnats early in 1918. As the first head of Stalin's personal secretariat, later the curator of the Lenin archive and eventually Stalin's first biographer, he would play a vital and largely covert role in his master's rise to personal power. In March 1918, Lenin moves his capital to Moscow. The civil war had made it too dangerous to stay in Petersburg, and that had become a frontier city. Stalin, as a commissar, was given quarters in the Kremlin, but needed a building to house his commissariat. He made a move on the Great Siberian Hotel, ordering his secretary, by the way, Nadezhda Luliev at this point, more of a Bolshevik than ever, to prepare notices announcing that his ministry had taken over the building. But when Stalin and Peskovsky arrived, they discovered that they had been forestalled by the Supreme Council of National Economy. Although they tore its notice down and put their own in place, they had to yield in the end. One of the rare occasions, Peskovsky observes, when Stalin emerged a loser. Yet, despite the humble, the humble status of its, his commissariat, it became clear that Stalin had penetrated to the inner circle when the Central Committee established an executive subcommittee of four, consisting of Lenin, Stalin, Trotsky, and Sverdlov, with power to decide all emergency questions without referral. Stalin also continued to operate as Lenin's executive assistant, and he and Lenin were continuously in and out each other's offices. The provisional government had promised the nation a freely elected constituent assembly, and Lenin had claimed that only the Bolsheviks could guarantee such an election. And, you know, although it was certain that a free election would return a socialist revolutionary majority, Lenin did not cancel it. The only free election based on universal suffrage in Russian history gave the Bolsheviks under a quarter of all votes cast. They did well in industrial centers and the army, while the Essers won an overall majority. When the assembly rejected the Bolshevik motion on the first day that it met, 5th January 1918, Lenin decided that, you know, enough's enough. Lenin ensured that it would not meet again by posting red guards at the entrance of its place by assembly. Nobody said anything else, really, because, you know, it's a communist state now, and an unarmed demonstration by non-Bolshevik socialists was brutally broken up by red guards with machine guns. Although Lenin's treatment of an elected majority may dismay those people of, of you who are, you know, accustomed to democratic traditions of different kind, his actions, as he writes later on, were ideologically justified. By voting as it did, the majority of the nation has demonstrated its political immaturity. It had failed to see that the Bolsheviks were the standard bearers of Marxist truth and that they were correct. That's how Lenin will postulate in his documents later on. Therefore, the majority must be disregarded in its own interests. Lenin was faced with the fact that, you know, his country was still at war with a uh, small country of uh, Germany, and even though the Russian army had an organized body, uh, had, like, stopped existing a while ago, uh, they still had to deal with the situation. Trotsky had opened peace negotiations with the German high command, but convinced that the German revolution would break out at any moment, he had come ready to deal with from strength. Unprepared to agree to German demands, and willing, indeed unable to continue fighting, he had come up with a new policy, neither peace nor war, which enjoyed basically nothing beyond its status as, you know, just a nice expression there. 
intended to suggest a holding operation pending the spread of revolution, it was without relation to the facts, on one side a well-trained and well-equipped army, on the other a mutinous rabble. Like some 20th century shaman, Trotsky coined an ingenious turn of phrase and credited it with the power to shape reality. Time and again he would repeat this, that mistake, supposing the magic of rhetoric an adequate substitute for action, only to find himself damaged by sticks and, you know, actual stones, bullets, mining pickaxes and stuff, and stuff like that. And this is where one of the best Stalin quotes come up, came about. Stalin saw obviously through Trotsky's blatant rhetoric, because Trotsky thought that, you know, his words were magic and he could achieve anything with this, and um, he commented on this whole Trotsky's idea of world revolution, <clears throat> quote, neither peace, nor war, nor a policy. But yeah, the Germans responded to Trotsky's hot air by, you know, stepping up their demands and continuing their advance on Petersburg, while the Allies, who really wanted to keep Russia at the war at this moment, offered military aid and unlimited advice. Many leading Bolsheviks kind of um, permitted their knowledge on Marx to obscure their grasp on reality. Bukharin called for the rejection of imperialist aid and the persecution of a people's war, with propaganda as the people's main weapon. Uh, Lenin, as I mentioned previously in the series, was a bit more realistic. He summed up the Soviet attitude to aid and trade for all time. Quote, Please add my vote to those in favor of accepting food and weapons from the Anglo-French imperialist robbers. Yeah, you know, we can take your stuff, but uh, you're still imperialistic robbers. But, obviously, in the end, uh, everything the Allies offered basically ended up badly. Germans announced that, you know, unless they, their demands were agreed at once, they would march on Petersburg within 48 hours. And even then, even at this point, uh, again, mentioned before, but do have to recap as this becomes more and more important, Lenin had really huge problems convincing any one of his comrades that, you know, since this German revolution thing that Trotsky really wants exists only in the, the words of Trotsky, yeah, we better make some deals. And, and here, here's the interesting thing, but the central committee of all this situation, they, they remained divided. And, uh, Stalin, Stalin, uh, refused, refused first and tried to sit on the fence, suggesting that kind of these peace con negotiations should be done without even signing a treaty. But Lenin responded sharply. If you don't sign, you'll sign the Soviet death warrant instead within three weeks. Yeah, this was kind of quite enough to persuade Stalin to vote with Lenin, who carried the motion with seven votes against, against four, with four abstentions. But his problems were not over. Trotsky was unwilling to return to Brest-Litovsk to sign a treaty and threatened to resign. Feeling that Trotsky was, pro was doth protesting too much, Stra Stalin dryly observed that some comrades kept offering to resign to make their colleagues improve them to stay. Although Trotsky had moments of glory to come, it was now that his support within the party began its steady decline. Once again, Lenin distinguished himself by his grasp on realities, accepting that the Germans had left him without a choice. He also managed to persuade his colleagues to accept the truth, which was really hard for them to eat, because it was really obscured by, the, by, their, by their ideological Marxism, and... Uh, all this reality of the city of Brest-Litovsk was hyper, hyper harsh. This treaty was signed on March the 3rd, 1918. Lenin lost Poland, Finland, Baltic countries, Ukraine, and parts of Transcaucasus. 
three centuries of territorial gains, basically. And yeah, and there there have been a lot of comments, even among uh, Russian Russian authors and everything, and everyone that I use for these series, about about how Lenin basically traded space for time. And uh, this was this was kind of crazy, but a lot of people later on, which I'll get to on this series, yeah, they compare this to uh, to the Red Army's retreat in 1941, and like like this was somehow intentional, but. Well, what can I say? This whole mess happened just because Germans were up close, and Lenin had to do something by now. But okay, by this point, Lenin has persuaded his central committee to sign this Brest-Litovsk treaty, but he still needed the whole 7th Central Party Congress to ratify it, otherwise it wouldn't hold, hold as a law. And this Congress was held in March 1918. And this was quite miserable, really. Uh, the previous one, in August 1917, mentioned earlier in this episode, uh, yeah, that was attended by 270 delegates. This time, only like 69 arrives. And, uh, yeah, following in the wake of this Russian free election, this was a crazy occasion. This was the last time that actually a party congress decided anything, in this case, the ratification of a treaty by a majority vote. Uh, even though it obviously was was rigged, and the fact that this majority vote was rigged uh, was, you know, it's even confirmed by my Soviet pro-communist sources, because, yeah, at one point, those guys start loving Stalin much more than they love Lenin. Anyhow, it would kind of be wrong to assume that this opposition to ratification stemmed from kind of like patriotism of, of losing lands. This one came from commitment to revolution by the book. Marxist book, no less. Which, you know, again, made all these ideological revolutionaries such as Trotsky just completely blind to reality. Uh, even though, you know, re the reality at this point was German army moving fast to St. Petersburg. The opponents of peace believed at this point that if you would stop the hostilities, then this would kind of, you know, also delay the imminent world revolution, without which kind of, as they all, as they all write with themselves, and this will become important, uh, without which the Bolsheviks were doomed. Yeah, because this part of Bolshevik ideology shall show up again at the end of World War II, and it'll make Stalin very unhappy, and we may speak later on about socialism in the single country. Yeah, it never exists that way. If you want to incite this radical, Leninist, oppressive communism then, you know, people will run away from this country and, you know, you can either turn all the world into a prison or you can just fail eventually, as actually happened. This is a nice ideological debate, which I'll keep on for further on. At the, at the Congress, by the way, uh, again, and this is... I'm not going to go into huge detail, but uh, basically at this Congress, Lenin outlined the whole nature of what is going to happen now. There will be no question of actually parliament or parties or the separation of powers because, hey, the Bolsheviks are right, everyone else is wrong, so why do you want the wrong people to keep in check the right people? And uh, in his writings, again, many of which I have quoted in the Lenin series, he makes it clear that state will be governed by the party. This is where that first really appears on paper, that the party will run everything. This is where he also speaks about the terror and everything. But the guys who will rule all the situation will be the workers. According to Lenin, quote, 
Workers are the standard bearers of virtue, peasants are dark and enlightened, embryo capitalists corrupted by the ineradicable and sinful urge to own land and animals and exploit the labor of others. End quote. Yeah, and that's something weird talking about, you know, Stalin wasn't very happy about this as Stalin always kind of wanted peasants to kind of glue around the workers, but now Stalin at one point is reported to feel a bit betrayed by Lenin here. And so, having acquired the support of the Congress, somehow, and ratified the peace with Germany, Lenin and the lead Bolsheviks were ready to face the civil war. Uh, Stalin will play a major role in the civil war, so we're leaving that to the next episode. But here, I want to discuss the war communism implemented by Lenin as an attempt to create a socialist reform and get the economy running. So they, you know, could win the war. I've talked about this like many other things in this episode in the Lenin series, but while doing my research I have uncovered plenty of new and interesting things about this weird economic system, so uh, hey, consider this an extended Ask Uncle Joe that also fits within the timeline nicely. You see, war communism attempted to abolish the market economy completely. Instead, there would be three ways in which the peasants would part with their produce, as we know, uh, it's all about the workers controlling the peasants in this Lenin's new system. First, by bartering grain for industrial goods. A plan which failed owing to the peasants' self-sufficiently and the co- uh, sufficiency and the collapse of the manufacturing industries. Self-sufficiency here meaning that, you know, in Russia, peasants had a shorter agricultural season than in warmer countries, so they spent their winters making clothing and stuff, and they never grew any ca- cash crops. Uh, they basically, you know, grew whatever they needed for food. Secondly, by setting up committees of poor peasants, kambiedi, uh, which would expropriate their richer neighbors. Uh, but, you know, it failed because, uh, with, because with them, they had much more in common than with these enthusiastic ideologues from the city who were yelling about how everything would be so awesome and nice right now. And thirdly, by means of armed food-gathering detachments, crusading for bread, as Trotsky and Lenin put it. This succeeded up to a point. See, food collection at pistol points produced something like half the average cash crop yield for the war period, and that was the time when the fields were being worked by women, children, and very, very old men. But despite its all economic shortcomings, politically speaking, it succeeded because it put a firm control of the city over the countryside. The second attempt was to establish workers' control over industry, and that failed miserably. See, all the virtues of the proletariat did not suffice to turn it into a management material overnight, and workers' control was rapidly replaced by state control. And yeah, this is where nationalization begins. The immediate consequence was overnight chaos, a massive, massive booze party too, by the way, and this is not a joke, and something more of a doubling in the number of bureaucrats needed to supervise the same number of production workers. The only thing that really prevented the total industrial paralysis was the existence of an unofficial semi-legal system of private enterprise and interorganizational fixing that bypassed normal channels. This is the birthplace of Blatnoy and black markets. War, com- war communism saw the emergence of four of the chief attributes of the Soviet economy. Number one, state control of agriculture and the flourishing agricultural private sector to make up for its shortfalls. Number two, state control of industry. Plus, that semi-legal system of dealings, you know, blatnoy and stuff, that really acts up as a lubricant for for everything, and that continues in some post-Soviet countries up to this day. 
This communism also meant highly centralized control, the rejection of an official market economy, the distribution of basic goods and services at extremely low prices, and wage structure, which meant equal wages for everyone, like it doesn't matter how much you produce. It also brought about the very common to us Soviet folk, uh, the world of bureaucratic absurdity, as, quote, official them flourished to a grotesque extent. I, I love those quotes from historians sometimes. Basically, some of the things that happened is that I've got reports about forestry department, for example, where a sub-district had formerly required one civil servant and a couple of clerks. The new guys employed literally hundreds of people, while a moneyless accounting system demanded paperwork on a humongous scale. And the peasants themselves, they were confused by this new apparatus that literally robbed them of their crops, and, uh, yeah, they also got devastated by the war, but that sometimes was the least of their, least, least of their problems. Uh, quote from an eyewitness account of the time. What was happening in Russia was in incomprehensible to them. They knew that the Tsar was no more and that freedom had been given to the peasant. But they felt that some huge deceit had been played on the dark people by those in high places. They were constantly harassed by the military. Soldiers of every kind and armed men without uniforms kept swooping down on the village, taxing, confiscating and pillaging. One by one their male folk had been drafted, often not knowing into what army, and then the boys began to be taken as young as 16. Generals and commissars kept coming and carrying everyone away and now all the cattle are gone and the fields cannot be worked except by hand and small patches and even the smallest children must help. Frequently, the older girls are dragged away by the officers and soldiers, returning later damaged and sick. In a nearby village, 18 peasants hanged themselves after the commissars had left. And yeah, the situation in the cities was a bit less desperate, but as absurd as there. At the height of war communism in Odessa, everything was nationalized. Written permission was required to travel for more than one stop on a tram or to transport a mattress from one apartment to another. An American visitor who was puzzled to find that the cab drivers were not nationalized asked the commissar why. And the reply was, quote, We found that if we don't feed human beings, they continue to live somehow. But if you don't feed horses, the stupid beasts die. That's why we don't nationalize them. And yeah, and another another one of anomalies that I found here while researching this is that apparently, apparently, the police in Odessa were paid in, in imperial rubles, worth many times their equivalent in Soviet money, but at the same time, to possess any imperial rubles was a capital offense. So that was completely crazy there. And... Uh, Although there was no shortage of organizers, organization basically was completely absent. An analyst of the city archives of Smolensk for this time writes, quote, The impression derived from the archive is one of almost chaotic disorganization, with the party itself more a helpless victim than the master of the whirlwinds it had helped unleash. Indeed, as one studies the record, the wonder is not merely that the party was victorious, but that it managed to survive at all. And yeah, considering the Bolsheviks had really attempted to install a new system of government along with the radical reform of methods of production and distribution while fighting a completely vicious war, it's scarcely surprising that whatever they did economically completely failed. The people kind of suffered and starved and the civil war is a sad story, but like I said, uh, more about that next episode, but um, there's a nice quote by the composer Shostakovich. Quote, those were the days when a log made a welcome birthday present. For all you do, this log's for you. 
Yet, the evident failure of war communism did not shake the faith of the majority of the communist leaders that all problems could be solved by more centralization, more control, more decrees, and more terrorism. And yeah, later on, later on, as, as my data proves, more and more leaders of Bolsheviks look back on war communism as a golden age. When the country was well on the way to socialism until some sort of pressures from the outside put an end to this experiment. And again, it was Stalin whom Lenin associated in retrospect with war communism and its techniques of administration by decree and firing squad. Boy oh boy how we love the firing squads. And yeah, in a conversation not long before he died, Lenin observed that Stalin was rude and disloyal, and in the same breath stated that war communism has been a mistake. So weirdly enough, even though our later historians note that war communism was great, that kind of made Stalin associated with it, but Stalin again shifts reality. And this is kind of weird, because Stalin got kind of close with this war communism, even though he was much busier at this time organizing the national minority activities. But about that, about that next time, people. Thank you for this episode, and sorry that was a bit rushed. Next episode is going to be about Civil War, like I said, and I hope you will like it despite it being a development hell and me failing a bit. A lot of fact-loaded, a lot of emotion-loaded. It's going to get better. Thank you, and до свидания, товарищи. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.